The scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's message is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's go before the Lord. Our Father, what a privilege it is to stand here. I thank you so much for the last three months, Father, of being able to draw away with you and to be with you and just to fellowship with you, Father, to learn so much from you, to see your glory, to taste your goodness, Lord, to enter all the more deeply into your joy. I thank you for that time, Father. I thank you for the rest that it afforded me. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege of standing again in this pulpit, Father, for the beginning of a ninth year of preaching ministry. I thank you for the literally hundreds of times that I've stood here to deliver the word of God. And I trust, Lord, that your word has not gone out void, but that it has produced the fruit it was designed to bear. Lord, some of that fruit we see, the vast majority of it we will not see, but you see it all, Father, because your word is powerful and it's true and it's faithful. And you always accomplish what you set out to accomplish. So thank you, Father. And I trust you for this morning, Lord. I trust you for this word, that it will bear fruit as well. And by faith, I thank you for what you will do. Lord, I thank you for Pastor Kevin. I thank you for the weeks that he spent here bringing the word of God so faithfully to the church. Lord, you know I listen to every message, and every message impact me 12 times in First Peter, Father. And Lord, was just so powerful. I thank you for his passion, Lord. I thank you for his care with the word of God. I thank you for the authority that you gave him to preach with. And I pray that that word would land upon the church, Lord. I pray that we would take it seriously. I pray that we would listen to what the Spirit was saying through Peter and through our brother Kevin. And I just thank you so much for my friendship with him, my partnership with him. I thank you, Father, for the privilege we have as a people to rejoice over your word week after week, month after month, year after year. And again, Lord, I pray that you would do it again this morning. Lord, you have prepared a feast for us today. So I pray that we would come near to you now and eat until we're full. We thank you by faith, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, great and gracious. Amen. The heart of the heart of the Christian life is living by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. At the core of how Christians approach life is a profound and growing trust in all Jesus is, in all he is for us, and in all that he has said. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is in fact the rock of our lives. It is the hope of our lives. It is the eternal, unending joy of our lives. The faithfulness of Christ is the stability of our lives. It is that internal sense of security and safety that we all need, even the tough guys among us. We were designed to need to have a sense of safety and security. The faithfulness of Christ is the only thing that will actually give that to us. 
The faithfulness of Christ is in fact our very lives, and I'm not exaggerating there. If Christ was not faithful, beloved, the universe would fling to pieces. Because Christ is faithful, all things hold together and all things press on toward their appointed ends. The faithfulness of Christ is our very lives. Because this is so, Christians are learning to live their lives in a particular way. We're not perfect at this, but our life is arcing toward this. Christians are learning to live by putting all of our trust in the purposes of God. We have been persuaded by the Holy Spirit that God is the wisest of all. Is this not true? Are you not persuaded through the Word and by the Spirit that God is wisest of all and that therefore His purposes are the best purposes of all? And we have been persuaded by the Holy Spirit and through the Word and just by looking at the enormity of the universe around us that God is all-powerful and that He alone is able to accomplish all of His purposes. You know that there's nobody else in all creation who's able to do that. Last week we talked about Satan, and he is a, a, a mighty foe, that's for sure. But he is not able to accomplish all of his purposes. I hope we understand that. The cross is the best example of the failure of Satan. He thought he was crushing the sun, when in fact the sun was crushing him on the cross, right? He set out to destroy all of God's purposes, and his very plans destroyed him. God is not like him. God is able to accomplish everything he sets out to accomplish. And so Christians are learning by the Spirit to put all of our trust in the purposes of God. All of it. We live by trusting in the promises of God. We believe that God means what he says. And that he says what he means. That he's able to do everything he has promised to do. He's able to bring it to pass. So we look to his words. We cling to his words. We hope in his words. We hear him say, I will do it, declares the Lord. And by the Holy Spirit, we choose to believe in him, hope in him, trust in him. And Christians live by putting all of our faith in the plans of God. Because we believe that the way he is designed to carry out his purposes and fulfill his promises is the exact best way to do that. The Christian life is about trusting, putting all of our trust in the purposes, promises, and plans of God. At the heart of the heart of the Christian life is living by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. At the center of how we approach life day by day is this profound and growing trust in all Jesus is and all Jesus has said. At the core of our being is this growing awe in the purposes and promises and plans of God. The more we understand about them and the more we actually see them with our eyes. In the last two weeks, God has moved powerfully for the Handron family. He has moved powerfully. We had great needs in joy. We brought those needs to him and he fulfilled them all. And we sat in our kitchen the other day and gave glory to Jesus because we saw with our eyes that his purposes, his promises, and his plans are real and true and valid. And this is what the Christian life is about, beloved. We don't live trusting in ourselves or trusting in others or trusting in money or trusting in things that are fading away. We have learned to fix our eyes on Christ, to fix our lives on Christ, and to put all of our faith in His stunning faithfulness. I have been on the mountain with Jesus, as it were, for the last three months. I've done 
cycling. I took up fishing, believe it or not. Kim's been trying to get me into fishing for 25 years, and I finally bit the hook. I'm enjoying fishing. So if you want to go fishing sometime, I would love to do that. I took plenty of time to rest and plenty of time to pray. But I am not exaggerating when I tell you that I have spent hundreds of hours in the last three months just being with Jesus. So many times, just opening up his word, seeing his glory, tasting his beauty, not having to break my train of thought at all, all day long, just being with Christ, seeing Christ, enjoying Christ. And beloved, I don't think I have anything more important to say to you than this. I actually feel like if I could get this point across, I'd be ready to die. My life will have been worth living if people will hear and understand at the heart of the heart of the Christian life is living by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. Great, oh how great is his faithfulness. My concern for my own heart and for us is that the words are so familiar, the idea is so familiar that we won't hear it. But I trust that by the Holy Spirit he'll help us today. That we'll grow more and more in our understanding of the power of the faithfulness of Christ in our lives. Hebrews chapter 11 is famously called the Hall of Faith, but I've suggested to you before that I think it should be called the Hall of the Faithfulness of God because it's essentially about Him. It does say in the beginning of the chapter that everybody who is listed there and more people received a testimony, and it's sure that that testimony is coming from the Lord toward people, but I think that the Lord's testimony goes something like this. The Lord is saying to us, look to Abraham. Abraham put all of his trust all of his trust in my purposes, in my promises, and in my plans. And he suffered. Believe me, he suffered. He went through difficulty. He went through many a trial. But he put all of his trust in me, and Abraham found out that I, the Lord, am faithful. So look to Abraham and imitate his faith in the faithfulness of God. And look to Sarah, that great woman of God, who through all her pain and bitterness and at times even depression looked to my purposes and looked to my promises. She clung to my words that I spoke and she chose to believe. She heard my plans and even when it was hard, she chose to believe and she found out in the end, after much suffering, she found out that I am faithful. So look to Sarah and imitate her faith in me. Imitate her faith in my faithfulness. And so it is with Joshua and Rahab and David and Hannah and so many others. The point of their faith is that they found me to be faithful. Beloved, Hebrews chapter 11 is essentially about the great, great faithfulness of God. And so then in chapter 12, the author turns toward his precious readers and he says, now it's your turn. Now you are on the field." Now it's time for you to run your race by faith in the faithfulness of God. Look to those who've gone before you. See that they ran their race by fixing their eyes on God and do the same thing. I know that this race is hard. I know that this race calls for suffering. I know that this race calls for us to have to endure and press through pain. I know that some of you are weary, that you're faint-hearted, that you're drifting away from Christ, that some of you even want to give up completely and go back to former things. But I'm telling you, I'm here to encourage you by the power of the Spirit. Fix your eyes upon the faithfulness of Christ and keep on running, keep on running, keep on running your race. That's what the beginning of chapter 12 is about. 
If I had to define what this race is, I would summarize it like this. I would say that God has called us to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to go with Christ together. Three simple words, know, grow, and go together. We have been called as a people to seek and see and savor the glory of who Jesus is and the glory of all that he has done. We have been called, we have been given permission, we have been given access to behold the glory of the one who is the inheritor of all things, who is the creator of all things, who is the sustainer of all things, who is the brightness of the radiance of the glory of God, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God, who made the once for all sacrifice for sin so that everybody who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We are called to seek and see and savor the glory of Jesus who forever sits at the right hand of the throne of God as the reigning king and the ruling high priest. Beloved, this is our great privilege. This is our race. And I want to be as clear as I can be that this calling is not simply to know things about Jesus. It's actually to enter into an intimate relationship with Jesus. This summer, I don't know how else to say it, but that Jesus showed me his glory day by day. And I, I really mean that. But I'm not, I don't mean to be, sound too mystical or anything, because all I'm talking about is that I meditated upon his word until I actually encountered Christ. Until I find myself with the one that I'm reading about, with the one that I'm meditating upon. And that's the race we're called to run, beloved. It's not just to know about Jesus, it's to walk intimately with Jesus who is our creator. What a stunning privilege. The more we understand about who Christ is, the more that ought to take our breath away. That we've even been given the right to know who he is in that way should take our breath away. Christians have also been called to grow in Christ. And I take this to mean that we've been called to be conformed into his image, that we've been, been called to be transformed until his character is our character. Christ is utterly fixated upon his Father. He never turns away, not even for a second. And slowly but surely, we're becoming like him so that we're fixated upon him and we just don't turn away. We, we lose the spiritual ADD of our lives and we're able to just focus on Christ in all things. Of course, we have to give attention to other things, but he comes first. And the more that we become like him, the more this becomes true of us. Christ is steadfast, he's faithful, he's patient, he never gives up, and the more that we're, we're in him, the more that we come to know him, the more we become like him. We become steadfast and faithful and patient, dependable, reliable. Christ is loving, he's gentle, he's patient, he's kind, he's stern at times. Sometimes he's harsh when he needs to be, but always in love. He's filled with joy inexpressible and beloved. Over time, we become like Jesus. This is the point of growing in him. This is the point of discipleship. This is the point of being a Christian. It's not just learning more things about Christ. It's actually becoming like Christ. Who can fathom this? Have you thought recently about the depth of your sin and who you were before you were in Christ? And even if you've known Christ as a child, have you thought about the seriousness of the things that separate you and the, 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 the power of your unworthiness to know him who is worthy above all? And have you realized that you were an enemy of him at one time, but now he has made you a child, not a servant or a subject, but a child 
and he has said that my destiny for you is for you to be like me. That's stunning, beloved. Peter says that angels long to look into these things because it's stunning. This is the race we've been called to run, to become like Jesus Christ. And we have been called to go with Christ. The reason Jesus came into the world is because the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit overflowed and propelled him into the world to seek and save the lost and to touch the least of these. If you look at John 17 very carefully, you'll see that in there. It was the overflow of the love of God that thrust Jesus into the world with gladness in his heart. And now we get to share in that. Do you see? It's not just the mission itself. It's the motive for the mission that we share in. We're sharing in the very love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we can't help but overflow and love the lost, love the least of these. We get to go on mission with the greatest king in the universe and be on the greatest mission in the universe, and we get to know that the outcome of the mission is absolutely guaranteed and secured. Jesus wins, beloved. That's all there is to it. There's times, aren't there, when we look at this world and say, or scratch our heads, say, it sure doesn't look like he's winning. But just read the early chapters of Hebrews and you'll be encouraged. He's winning. It's just that he's patient and his purposes are taking some time to work out. He knows exactly what he's doing. And beloved, we get to serve that king. We get to go with that king. We get to be instruments in the hand of that king. In the coming weeks, I can't wait to tell you stories. The Lord has opened up so many chances for me to share his love with people over this summer. I can't wait to tell you the stories. But the main thing about it is this, that we get the privilege as broken people of being used by the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the great high priest of heaven. And who can express the privilege of this? Who can put it into words? About four or five weeks ago, as I was getting ready to come back to GCF, I was at this park down in Fridley. It's right on the Mississippi River. It's a really awesome park. It's like sort of sunk down right by the river. It's kind of hidden, so it's hard to see. And I was there completely alone, completely by myself. I was just enjoying time with Jesus and seeing certain things about him. And I just began to cry in worship to him, in thanksgiving to him for all that he had shown me that day, all he had shown me over the summer. And I just cried out to him and I said, Lord, how will I ever say what I have seen? I can use words, Lord, but how will I ever express the depth of the reality of encountering Jesus Christ? How will I do it? I'm sure that as the Lord wants to, he'll allow me to do that, but I'm also sure that for every single Christian person, there are aspects of our lives that are just inexpressible. They're just inexpressible. When you encounter Christ, human language just doesn't work to express it all, does it? The privilege of knowing him, of growing with him, of going with him is just stunning. And I pray that the more and more you get to know who he is, the more and more that that will land upon you. Now, as great of a privilege as it is, as much of a, 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 a really a stunning calling that it is to run this kind of race, we must admit that it's hard, isn't it? The way of life that Christ calls us to is very simple, but it's difficult. And the reason it's difficult is not because of him or because of what he's called us to do. Actually, life in him is extremely easy. It's extremely simple. Love the Lord your God, love each other. It's so simple. Sin is what makes it hard, beloved. The sin and rebellion in our hearts, the sin and rebellion in other people's hearts, the sin and rebellion in the world and the consequences of sin, that's what makes it all so hard. 
But having said that, we just have to acknowledge it is hard to run this race, isn't it? I've heard a couple people say over the years that, it, that they don't find it hard, and, and I don't say it back to them because it seems rude to me in the moment, but I must be honest to say that it makes me wonder, are they actually running the race at all? It's like if you're in a running race and you think it's easy, I just are like, how, so how hard are you running or are you really running at all? This is hard. The reason that the author uses the metaphor of a race and especially a running race is because life with Christ is intense. It's difficult. It calls for suffering. It's not for nothing that Jesus said, take up a cross, take up the, an instrument of death. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to endure. You're going to have to make a choice not to give up. You're going to have to choose to keep pressing on and keep pressing on. It's going to be difficult. The race that we're being called to run, beloved, is not a recreational race. It's a function of war. It's a war. The race that we're being called to run is not like the 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and marathons that all of us can enjoy if we want to, where, where fitness and fun are really the point of it. Now, I know some of you think running and fun don't belong in the same sentence with each other, but there are people who find running fun. We're not in a recreational race, beloved. We are in a race that is like a function of war. We're in a race that's like the very first marathon. Have you heard the story? The army of Greece fought the army of Persia in the city of Marathon in Greece. And miracle of miracles, the Grecians won the war. They should not have been able to win, but they won. The, the Persians left out of Marathon on their ships and sailed toward Athens where they planned to attack that city. So the generals of the army of Greece commanded their army to march double time toward Athens to give reinforcements to that city. And in the meantime, they sent their fastest guy to run as fast as he could, 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens to get the news to the people, number one, that they had defeated the Persians. That was great news. That was unexpected news. Number two, that the Persians were on their way to Athens and they wanted to fight. So you better get ready. And number three, Reinforcements are on the way. The army is marching double time to get to you. Help is coming. Beloved, that guy was not running a recreational race, right? That guy was not out to get better physical fitness that day. He was not out just to think through something or whatever. This guy was running as a function of war and lives were on the line. It's not just a metaphor. I think this is a reality. Our race is like that. Lives are on the line. The race we're running is very serious, and it's a war, beloved. Isn't it a war to know Christ day by day by day? Next month, I will have been walking with Jesus for 29 years, and I still can't believe sometimes how much of a fight it is for me to put him first in my life, to really put him first in my life. It is a war to overcome my flesh and to overcome this world and to overcome my love of this world so that I prefer Jesus over everything. It is a war, not a metaphor, beloved, a reality. It is a war to grow in Christ, is it not? Is it not a war to put aside the things of the flesh and to become like Jesus? Is it not a war to let go of earthly things so that we can embrace heavenly things? Beloved, it is a war to fight against this flesh. Even with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are in a war. It is a war to go with Christ. It's a war to care about lost people enough so that you'll actually do something about it. 
It's a war to care about the least of these enough so that you will sacrifice your own agenda. You'll sacrifice how you were going to use your time. You'll sacrifice your money, your talents, whatever, so that you can bless other people. It is a war to overcome the inherent self-centeredness of the human heart. We are in an absolute war, and lives are on the line, beloved. Amen? This is no joke. And because this is true, the author gives us four bits of advice for running this race. And I do want to tell you up front that if you're just playing church or you're just playing Christianity, these things aren't really going to mean much to you. They're just going to bounce off your heart and you'll go about your day like, like, like any other day. But if you're serious about running this race, you need to hear what the author has to say. I need to hear what the author has to say. He's trying to give us life so that we can run with Christ. That's what he's about. So he gives us four things. The first thing is this. He says in verse 1 that we ought to lay aside all the weights and sins in our lives which so easily wrap themselves around us and constrict us from running by faith as we should. So the metaphor that I have in my mind, I was just imagining this the other day and I actually tried something. I want to, especially you kids, you'll, you'll definitely take me up on this. Try doing this. Imagine that your arms are tied to your body. So especially if you have a brother, I bet your brother would love to do this to you. Have your brother tie your arms to your body and then try to run with your arms tied to your body, okay? I'm not going to do it right now in case anybody would film with a phone or something like that. <laughs> but I actually tried this in the office yesterday and I felt so stupid. It's, it's really hard to run like this, okay? You can do it, but I don't think you could run a whole marathon with your arms tied to your body. I don't think you could do it. Imagine then that somebody takes a rope and ties the upper part of your legs together. Try to run like that, okay? All you could do is this right here. That's really going to look stupid. Try to run like that. And then imagine that somebody ties your shoes together really tight, really tight. Try to run like that. You can't literally run, right? You fall straight over. Maybe you can hop for a while, but I doubt very seriously that you could hop for 26.2 miles, right? That would be a whole other uh, Olympic race, the potato sack marathon or something like that. It would be ridiculous. I think the author has this kind of thing in mind. He's saying the weights and sins in our lives constrict us and keep us from running. And please hear me. He's saying that we're complicit in this. We're complicit in the ropes being tied around our body. And in Christ, we have the power to take the ropes off. We have the power to untie our shoes. We have the power to loose the legs. We have the power to loose the arms again. We do. And so he tells us to do two things. Take off the weights and take off the sins. Cut the ropes. Do it. Christ has given you the power. This is the good news. Do you realize before you were in Christ, you had no power to cut the ropes? You know, we sang today, my chains are gone, my soul is set free. There were real chains upon us. We were slaves of the flesh, slaves of the world, slaves of the devil. Christ broke those things, and now we have power to be free. This is really good news, beloved. This is really good news. So take off the weights and take off the sins, and those are two different things. Weights are things in our lives that are good. They might even be very good things in our lives, but for some reason they're out of balance, and they're keeping us from running as far and fast as we can with Jesus. They could be things like family, things like hobbies, things like possessions. So I just took up fishing, and then I heard a, a brother in Christ say that fishing's getting in the way of his walk with Christ, so I gotta be careful. <laughs> I'm gonna enjoy fishing, but not too much. Could be, you know, I like cycling. That's another thing that's good, that, but could become a weight possessions that you have, boats or cabins that just take up so much of your time, family, 
even things like obsessive Bible reading and theology reading can become a weight, right? We can be so obsessed with learning about Christ that we never actually walk with Christ. There are good things in our lives that are just out of balance and we need to get them back in balance. So while this subject is on the table, I just wanna ask you to think about this with me. Let the Lord draw some things to your mind right now. What are some weights in your life? You don't have to think of 20 of them, just maybe one or two. What's a weight or two in your life that's constricting your arms and legs and keeping you from running with Christ as you should? And let's just ask a few questions here. How do I spend my free time? How do I spend my extra money? In other words, when I'm not obligated to give or to spend time in a certain way, what do I do with it? And what does that tell me about what I really value in my life? What is my life really about? What are my true priorities? Or this is a good one, I think for me, it's been helpful for me to think about this. If I'm being really honest, is there anything in my life that actually takes precedence over Jesus? Like when I have extra time, when I have extra money, do I naturally run to this thing over here rather than to Christ? What is it in my life? And I'm talking about good things right now. Good things, but that are getting in the way of Christ. Dave, what's that thing that you say when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing, right? When a good thing gets put in the place of God, it's a bad thing. So that's what we're talking about. Is there a weight or two or three in your life, beloved, right now that's getting in the way? Please note this down. We're here to do business with Jesus. We're not just here to talk about these things. If you want to run with Christ, just think about one or two things. The Lord is so gracious. I was telling a couple of the brothers the other day that I love this about him. He probably has a list of 10,000 things, but he only gives you one or two at a time because <laughs> he's gracious, and I love that about him. So what are they in your life? Now, sins are not like weights, are they? Sins are not neutral. In fact, they're very destructive. Sins are what I call anti-faith. They're faith killers. They sap our energy for Jesus. They keep our eyes from seeing Jesus. They keep our heart from feeling for Jesus. They keep our wills from bending toward God's, and they always bend our, our wills back toward us. And the author is saying that we are complicit in the sins that are in our lives. We're not just helpless victims. We're not. And he's saying if you want to run with Christ, you do it by grace through faith. It's all about his finished work in you. But beloved, you have to learn to walk away from what Christ has taken away. You must. If you're going to run with him, you've got to run away from other things. So let's just ask the Lord to bring some stuff to mind. Draw now your sins to mind. These are not good things. These are, these are bad things in your life. Here's a few questions. What habits or patterns in my life are clearly displeasing to the Lord? And I might add, and I know that they are displeasing to the Lord. You know, there was that one person in the Bible who said, uh, or no, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Many times we have to pray, Father, forgive me because I knew exactly what I was doing. So what are those things in your life right now? One or two, again, not 20 or 30, but one or two. In what ways am I actually cooperating with the enemies of my faith right now? How am I helping them? Here, could you just put your finger here on the rope so I can make the knot a little tighter? How are we complicit in it? How are we saying, oh yeah, sure, why don't you come closer? If you get a little bit closer, you can tie my shoes tighter. How, how are we being complicit? Or our question again that's really been helpful to me. What, if I'm being honest, do I actually love more than I love Jesus? Are, are there some sins in my life that I, if I'm being really honest, I say, Lord, I don't want you to take this away from me because I like it too much. And I really like to have you in my life, but I really want to have this thing in my life. Beloved, we're here to do business with God today. 
So please let him speak to you. Let him raise things up in your heart. Let him raise things up in your spirit. What's a sin or two in your life that you know you've got to let go of and let go of right now? Let God minister to you because he's trying to help you run far and fast. He's trying to increase your joy in knowing him, growing in him, and going with him. Second bit of advice that the author has for us is he says, while you're taking off those weights and sins, while you're sort of pausing in the race to get yourself a little bit more prepared, look up and notice something. Notice that you are absolutely surrounded by this enormous cloud of witnesses of people who are testifying to you that God is faithful and they're encouraging you to run your race with all of your might. Notice them. They're everywhere and they're encouraging you to endure because they've already found out that God is faithful to the end and now they want you to enter into the joy that is theirs forever. I don't know how this works in God's mind. You know, can Abraham and Sarah actually see us right now? I mean, does Abraham know that I'm actually talking about him right at this moment? I don't, I don't know. I know for sure that the Bible never, ever tells us to pray to these people and to ask things of them. I know that for sure. But I'll leave the details of that to God. Here's what I know about how they encourage us, how they cheer us on. They do it through the Word of God, right? As we read the stories in the Bible, we ought to learn to look for two things. Please note this down. Please learn this discipline. As you're reading the Bible, look for the faith of people and look for the faithfulness of God. Look for people's faith and look for God's faithfulness. Romans 15.4 says this. Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Or if I could put it in the terms of Hebrews, By looking at the scriptures, we see the faith of people who trusted in the faithfulness of God, and we see that God was in fact faithful. So while we're reading the scripture, Abraham is crying out to us, God is faithful. Believe in him, hope in him, trust in him, run your race. We'll see in October, as we look to a great woman of God like Hannah, Samuel's mother, Oh, what a woman of God she was. She looked to God and hoped in God and trusted in God. And the main thing to know about Hannah is she found out that God is faithful. And she wrote this amazing song about that. I can't wait to get there and talk about it with you. Amazing. We see her faith. We see God's faithfulness. And in that way, Hannah is cheering us on and saying, trust in God. Hope in God. Put all of your chips into that place that says the faithfulness of God. Don't hold anything back. This is how the scriptures encourage us. So I just want to ask you, how are you doing with your Bible reading right now? I want to be as clear as I can that the call to Bible reading is not about fulfilling a Christian duty. It's about feeding faith. Do you see? It's about feeding faith. Reading the word of God is the food of faith. It's the drink of faith. And we ought to learn, as Peter says, to crave it like that baby craves pure spiritual milk. For those of you who have had small, tiny babies, what do they do when they don't get their milk? Even if it's three o'clock in the morning, what do they do? They will disrupt the entire world until they get what they want, right? And they're not wrong, by the way. They're right. If they don't get that, they will die. Recently, our finches had more finches. That's what finches tend to do. And those little baby finches, man, oh man, when they get hungry, are they annoying or what? They're really annoying. But I got to admit, before God and before my beautiful wife, they're right. 
if they don't get food, they will die. We should learn to crave the Word of God like that. Not see it as a duty, but as a delight to feed our faith. To feed our faith. We should think about it. I heard a brother say a while back, he said, you should think about the Word of God like somebody's holding your head under the water and you've got to get out to get breath. Have you ever, when you were a kid, especially maybe been in a swimming pool and, and may, probably it was one of your brothers, holding you underneath the water, what will you do? You will do anything you have to do to get up and breathe. And, and our faith feels like that, by the way. We need the Word of God. So how are you doing, beloved? It's not a call to legalism. This is a call to feeding faith. How is the Bible functioning in your life? Are you seeing faith there? Are you seeing God's faithfulness there? Are you seeking to obey what God would give you to obey? Whatever he would have to say to you right now, just let him draw near to you. Let him speak to you and follow in his way. He's trying to teach you how to run faster and farther. Third thing that the author has to say to us today is that we should lean on each other. We were designed to run this race together, and that is just such tremendously good news. We have a team. We're not like MMA people who just fight as an individual fighter. We are like relay racers. We're running together. We are a team of running warriors. That's who we are. Look at the text again. I just want to read all all three verses with you again, and I'm going to highlight all the plural words, because this is addressed to us, not just to me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. You see, we're designed to do this together. And sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before who? Before us, looking to Jesus. And that verb there in Greek is plural. It means you all look to Jesus. You all fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. And again, it's plural. It's like y'all consider him together. Do this as a function of body life together, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you all may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Beloved, life in Christ is life together, and this is a great gift. It's a tremendous gift. So let me just ask a couple questions again. How are you doing? Are you engaging in the body of Christ? Are you seeing the place that Christ has afforded it? Are you contributing to your brothers and sisters? Are you helping them to run their race? And are you receiving from them what God has designed you to receive from them so that you can grow, know Christ, and grow in Christ, and go with Christ together? Are you living life in the body? That's how Christ designed it. May the Lord give us insight and passion. I'll tell you, over the last three months, meditating so carefully again through Hebrews, I just feel so much more resolved about life together, and I pray that the Lord would do that for all of us. The final bit of wisdom is the most important bit, and it is where the author tells us in verse 2 to look to Jesus, and there he uses a word that's very strong. It means to, to fixate on somebody. It means to stare and to keep on staring. It means to give your undivided attention to someone. It means to look away from other things and look toward that one thing and don't stop looking. And this, not just in a moment in time, but as a way of life. Look to Jesus and look to Jesus and look to Jesus together. Live your life by the faithfulness of Christ together. And then in verse 3, he adds this word consider, which means again to think carefully about, to ponder often, to ponder thoroughly 
Really think about Christ. So the way that I think about it is as you're running down the track, running as far as you can, your arms have been freed, your legs have been freed, your shoes have been untied, you're running as fast as you can, the place your head ought to be fixated on is Jesus himself. You don't need to look at the track so much. You don't need to look at the people around you. You don't need to worry about the heat of the day, the circumstances around you. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and run your race that way. And notice in verse three what he tells us to think about. He says, consider this, that Christ suffered greatly when he was running his race. The Lord knows how hard this race is because he's been inside the race. And please notice in verse three that the kind of difficulty Jesus suffered was not a random difficulty. It was very personal. People attacked Jesus. People maligned Jesus. People came after Jesus. They made all kinds of trumped up things against him. And in fact, those things became so strong. And by the way, the people who did it were religious people who on the outside would have looked all put together, but their hearts were not right with God. And they attacked him in a very personal way to the point where he died because of it, beloved to the point where he died because of it. He knows what it means to suffer in this race. And the author is saying, look to him, trust in him, hope in him, consider that he knows how to get you through. He knows how to help you endure. He knows how to make you finish this race. So stare at Jesus and keep on running and keep on running and keep on running. And then notice at the very end of verse three, notice his reward. Now, after a little bit of suffering, his suffering was the most worthy of suffering in the universe, it's infinitely valuable, but really it was just a very short period of time compared to eternity. Now he is at the right hand of his Father forever and ever, where there are pleasures forevermore that are unspeakably great. Jesus' reward is unspeakable, beloved, and his reward is our reward. So keep on running toward, the, uh, toward that prize. Keep on running toward the prize of being with Christ and being like Christ and enjoying the joy of Christ forever and ever and ever. Beloved, this is the point of the race. This is the destiny of the race. So fix your eyes on Christ and run with him as far as you can, as fast as you can. The heart of the heart of the Christian life is living by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. It's staring at him and enduring the race. At the center of how we approach things in life as Christians is this profound and growing trust in all Jesus is and all that Jesus has said. At the core of how we live life is an awe in the purposes and promises and plans of God. This is how Christians live our lives. The faithfulness of Jesus is our rock, our hope, our joy, our stability, our endurance, our everything. So I pray with all my heart now, I pray that we will hear the word of the Lord, obey the word of the Lord, look to Christ, and run our race together. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm so grateful for you giving me this word on my first Sunday back to church. And I pray now that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make it effectual in our lives. I pray that we will not only just hear this word, but that we will truly receive this word, that we will understand that the key to life is depending upon your faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that the things that you brought to mind, that we would take action on those things today. I pray that we would be serious about the weights in our lives and that we would be serious about the sins in our lives. 
I pray that we would be serious about devouring the word of God and looking to this cloud of witnesses that is literally surrounding us. I pray that we would be serious about fixing our eyes upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I pray that we would learn to run this race with passion and with power. And I thank you, my Father. With all my heart, I thank you for what you'll do. Please be near to us now as we rise to sing in praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.